G'day and welcome to Al McGlashan's podcast, the best job in the world. And I tell you what, this week we're going next level. It's the most exciting one yet because we're talking my favourite fish, or should I say shark, the Mako Sharks. So stay tuned, I'm getting a coffee, this is going to be good. Now, I'll tell you what, I love the Mako shark. I still remember seeing my first one as a kid down at down at Bermagui, I think I was, sitting there and saw this fin on the surface, you know, classic shark attack sort of style, jaws special, tailing along, and I would drive over to it. It's about three foot long, wasn't the biggest shark in the world. And ever since then, I've been absolutely captivated by this amazing species. You know, Obviously the greatest thing ever, and we have to go straight into that. So the one we should start off with is when I had that insane encounter with that massive mako when it ate the marlin. And you can see it on YouTube. I've gone through in some of the past podcasts about it, but to be in the water with a six, maybe 700-pound mako, as it does what it does naturally, was nothing short of insane, and it gave me a whole new level of respect. But do you know what's really interesting? that it really made me think about Makos because Makos are aggressive fish. Everyone, you know, oh, I chewed on my engine, came up and tried to eat the boat. It did this, it did that. I'd never get in the water with them. So you know what I did? I went and had a look at the shark attacks around the world and I can't find in Australia a single encounter that shows a Mako shark. Even if you go worldwide and we're talking, I'm just looking it up now as we go through it, the International Shark File Attack File, which is the uh, Florida Museum. And according to them, in history, there's only been, and this is what's interesting, so short fin, because there's two types of mako. You've got the long fin and the short fin mako. So they're saying there were nine attacks by short fin makos, eight by makos. So what's the difference? So people can't even identify it. And out of that, there's only ever been one fatal attack ever in the world. Now, there's two parts to this. One, how do you identify a shark when it's eating you? And or how do the other people identify it? Because I've even been at the boat ramp and had people bring a blue shark in and tell me it's a Mako. So it's pretty hard for people that meant to know what they're doing, let alone newcomers to doing it that have no idea. If it's blue, they probably call it a Mako shark. And let's face it, a Mako looks very similar to a white shark as well. But it really makes you wonder. And I've been in the water with a couple now over the years, ever since that infamous encounter and I tell you what it has changed the way I look at these beautiful fish they're not they're not the killers that people make them out to be they are honestly an awesome fish they are aggressive but they're not killers I've got to say that they're just beautiful fish and when they come up the boat and they chew on the back of your boat and all that they're testing it the problem with a shark and I'll tell you this 
is that when they swim around the ocean, they don't have the choice of going to KFC or McDonald's or any other crappy takeaway food. Might add to throw all the rubbish, all the rubbish ends up in the ocean, seems to come away from takeaway as well, but we won't go into that. Ends up killing sharks, actually. Is that they don't have the opportunity to go and pick what they're going to eat. So they go and grab it first. Now, it's no different from us. What do we do? We pick it up with our hand and hold it in our hand and have a look at it, whatever it is we want to sample. They use their mouth. Obviously, that's not the best thing for some swimmer or surfer or someone paddling or a diver who gets his leg bitten off. But what's really interesting there is the mako shark, its teeth are fangs. So it's designed for grabbing. It's not designed for cutting. So you never see them hanging around a dead whale as you would for tigers and whalers and, of course, white sharks because their teeth are serrated for cutting. So a mako is more designed for actually catching fish. And if you look at a white shark where they're younger, their fangs are actually more, well, I suppose they're more fang-like as opposed to as they evolve, they become more cutting. So that then they seem to evolve onto mammals and, you know, to other things and occasional human as well. But the mako isn't. So I reckon... It's an unfair analysis that they're evil. They have got an evil-looking eye, but they're not as aggressive as people make them out to be. And the people that say that are staying in the boat. They're not actually jumping in. Those that have jumped in actually find them to be quite a timid species. Not that I'm recommending that you jump in with them. Because you know what? The mako shark is the fastest fish in the sea, as far as I can understand. Now, I've looked up every report and I don't know that up to sort of you know, 60, 70 kilometres an hour, but I don't know how they get this and I can't find out. And if anyone's out there can tell us how these fish actually or how they record this and get an actual speed off these fish, I would absolutely love to know. So send it in. We've got Facebook, we've got Instagram, we've got Twitter. Of course, YouTube, if you want to see that amazing footage, go onto the YouTube, on Alan McGlashan's YouTube channel and watch it because I even watch it now and again and still relive the moment. And I tell you what, for everyone out there on Instagram that reposts it, love it. It's all good. But if I got a dollar's donation for every one of those, I would be the richest bloke on earth. Oh, man, it gets reposted, that photo. So the Mako Shark, they have truly evolved into an, literally the perfect offshore predator that reigns supreme with literally no enemies. They do have a few issues with Mako, uh, with with swordfish, and I suspect killer whales and Pilot whales and that might give them a hard time as well. But pretty much, as soon as they get big, they've got no competition out in the open ocean. Now, they're a member of the mackerel family of sharks, and they're closely related to the great white and the poor beagle. But they're actually, there's a few distinct, you know, they, they seem to have more streamlined body and a very distinct nose. That's one way of telling part. I mean, obviously, it's colorations and fins and all that. But when you think about it, there's more than 400 species of shark found around the world. Isn't that amazing? 400 of them. Obviously, most of them aren't dangerous or pelagic or anything like the whites and all those sort of things or poor beagles, but uh, the mako or mako, as the guys in New Zealand call them, the mako, which actually the name mako or mako comes from the Maori. It's a sacred Maori name. And I'm not sure of that. And I tried to look it up and get an idea of where it came from and, and what the history is for the, the culture behind it. And I couldn't find, there were a few competing ones, so I'd love to know what it actually is. So again, this is what this is great about podcasts, is come back to me and tell me what you know. And the beauty is that unlook, unlike Facebook and all those sort of things that can be a pain in them, you know, let's face it, 
There's a few trolls on there. The podcast is a great way to get feedback because for me, the Mako shark is one of the most amazing fish in the sea and they are they are subject to some serious conservation issues along the way, which I'm going to go into. I won't go too hardcore on the greenies, but I will go into it a bit later on. So let's start with the Mako. Let's put down some facts that are undisputed. They are partially warm butter. So let's start off with a few facts for the Mako shark that are undisputed. Now, you know they're partially warm-blooded. They're endothermic. So only a few sharks are endothermic, which means they partially heat their own blood, which means, in layman's terms, they're more effective hunters. So they can dive deeper and not cool down. They can hunt efficiently. And so, as far as I understand, if they're heating the nerve between the eye and the brain, once the water cools down so they go down deeper they're still effective. They can still hunt. So they're not really, I suppose you could say, they're not the cold-blooded killers that people make them out to be. They're actually a very highly sophisticated, unbelievable pelagic predator. You know, the ability to warm their blood makes them just next level. And I suppose on the evolutionary scale, that puts them right up there in the ocean. So now there are two species of mako shark, the long-finned and the short-finned mako. Now the short-finned, is found right around the world in all temperate and tropical waters, both in the northern and southern hemispheres. So from the Atlantic to the Indian to the Pacific. And right here in New South Wales, they're common most of the year. But they're all short fins as far as we know. The long fin is much less known. And it's got a probable distribution. That's what it's classed as. They don't even know. According to the Museum of Florida, the Florida Museum, they're semi-common in the Western Atlantic and possibly Central Pacific Ocean. I'm not sure on the details on that. That's only what I've read, but it's rare elsewhere. I think part of the problem is in the identifying because people don't know or wouldn't be able to recognize them. Like to me, it's a mako. Now, the distinguishing features are that the long fin mako is obviously looks the same as the short fin mako, but it has much larger pectoral fins. That's obvious. It's darker rather than pale coloration around the mouth and has larger eyes. I mean, these are all small elements that it's pretty tough to tell the difference. Having the larger eye to me suggests it's a deep water fish straight away. It also has the presence of only one lateral keel on the tail and the lack of lateral cuspids on the teeth, which distinguishes it from the closely related poor beagle shark. So you can see there, this is really hard stuff to identify. And even if you get one or two, is it going to be a new species? What we do know with the with the longfin mako is they grow to around 13 feet. That's the females, of course. At birth, they're around that three, three and a half foot, which is sort of 90, 90 centimetres to just over a metre. Uh, standard of most sharks, the, the males only grow to about two metres, two and a half metres, while the females grow right up, right up to sort of 13 foot. That's massive, isn't it? You know, that's four metres long. But we don't know much about it. It intrigues me. I want to find out more. And if anyone out there knows a lot about the longfin mako, please send me a message on Instagram, on Facebook. Anyway, contact us and let us know what you reckon because I'd love to know more about them. It intrigues me that I don't know that much about this awesome species, which I should know a heap more. So let's get to the short fin. Let's get down the nitty gritty, the one we know. It's common in all the oceans. It's the one we mostly encounter. Here in New South Wales, as far as we know, they're all short finned. Ah, they're an amazing species. You know, they're just 
Like all sharks, we've said they're endothermic, which means they're warm-blooded. Let's go into their mating cycle. The mating cycle only happens around every year and a half. That's every 18 months. Female mako sharks have a gestation period of around 18 months on top of that. See, this is it. So they're actually quite a slow-growing fish or a slow-reproducing fish, I should say. So they have a maximum of, of one every three years. Since female sharks don't reach maturity until... They're saying that they reach maturity at 19, 20 years, but only live for an average of 30 years. This is interesting, but whether or not this is true, I'd like to find the science behind this. These are the notes the guys have given me. I, I'm not sure that's all correct, to be honest with you. I'd like to know more. Again, we need some scientists. We, we need research on the species. We want people to come back and tell us. If that's the case, they may only give birth three times in their life. That can't be correct. Surely they give birth. If that's the case, we've got real issues. You know, if they've got a gestation period of 18 months. That's another issue. Yeah, that's interesting. Really interesting stuff. So it makes you wonder about it. Now, here's another interesting fact. Being a pelagic species, they're open water, they're offshore as most of their life. You never ever see one in an aquarium, do you? But according to this, the current record is held by New Jersey Aquarium, which lasted five days. And that was way back 20 years ago. So that shows that these poor things do not live in captivity. Mind you, you know what? Don't put them in captivity. They're too beautiful in the water. Now, when I was go- just before as I was going on about most shark attacks for Makos, I should have mentioned there have been quite a few attacks, but nearly all those attacks have occurred with angling. So people gaffing them, people getting bitten while landing them. That doesn't count, all right? You're attacking the fish. It does not count as an attack on humans because you initiated it. If the fish initiated, and that's where there's literally none, you know, it's, it's interesting that they're all provoked or, you know, harassment of the shark, which where they've obviously turned around and even the score out. And there's great stories about them jumping in the boats and, you know, doing all these crazy things. And I remember years ago down at Bermagui, one of the sharks actually jumped in the boat. Like, what an amazing thing to actually jump in the boat. So they are the fastest fish in, or the fastest shark, I should say, in the sea with, you know, the potential of 75 kilometres an hour, which is what, about 40 miles, I'm guessing, 40 miles an hour. Some reports even say 100 kilometres an hour. But how do they test this? You know, I'm going to say it again. How do they test the accuracy of this? Now, what's really interesting, not only can they go high speeds, but this goes back to them about being endothermic, which being warm-blooded, is the short fin mako can withstand some amazing variations in temperature. So right down to that 15 degrees, right through to more than right up 25, 28 degrees. I think I've seen them in 26 degree water myself and right down into really cold water. And what you see there is they're obviously quite prevalent right through tropical waters, but they're down deep because the surface water is hotter. If you go to the cooler waters, you'll see them up feeding on the surface because they're up in that warmer water because they love that sort of, you know, 20 degrees, sort of that, just that nice warm water, 20 degrees, not Fahrenheit that is, guys. And in places like Australia and New Zealand particularly, you'll see them finning around on the surface because when it's yeah, when it's calm, I suppose they might be doing it, it's rough, but you don't see them as much because they're sitting in that warmer land. For fishing, understanding water temperature is really, really important. So when it comes to eating, some reports are telling me that it's 3% of their, their weight each day. 
and it takes them around one to two days to digest an average size meal. So I tell you what, what goes down the gob there disappears pretty quick. And because they're a grabbing fish, they swallow most of it whole. So it's pretty amazing to think that these fish are swallowing down. And it shows that they're obviously active hunters that they're feeding, you know, pretty much every day they're finding a feed. And there's no Maccas or takeaway shops for these poor boys, I tell you that. Okay, let's look at the largest one ever taken. So as far as I know, it was around 600 kilos and was caught off California back in 2013. 600 kilos. What's that, 1,312, 15 pounds, something like that? That is a massive, massive mako. The longest verified is 4.45 metres. That's that's over 14 foot. And it was caught off the Mediterranean coast of France in 1973. Same year I was born. That is a good vintage. Now, they grow for around 30 years, according to some for males, and females around 32 years. So that's really interesting. The males, which don't grow as big, still last for about the same length as females. So this is what's really interesting. So 50% are sexually mature at eight years of age for the males. But for the females, sexual maturity can be at 18 years. So it is. So this is coming in. This is quite interesting that, you know, it's a two and a half meter fish. So if we're killing those big fish, we're killing the big breeders. This is like killing a flathead and stuff. We shouldn't be killing the big makos because they're all females and they haven't even started pupping yet. I love these podcasts. I learn it from my own notes. The guys organize the notes for me. And because I'm so organized, I don't actually read them beforehand. I sometimes just go straight into it. I just wing it. And here we are looking at something that's really important. So looking after these mako sharks, we really need to readdress killing big makos because they're all females. And if they're not spawning till they're 18 years of age and they're only having one or, you know, maybe a couple of pups, man, this is a real issue. I love this stuff. This is amazing. So they have the ability to grow more than 700 kilos potentially. They are obviously a true apex predator. I mean, there's not much else out there. Juveniles will feed on tuna. Ah, this is interesting. But once they get up to around that two and a half, three meter range, like the one I encountered, they prey on marlin. See, this is really interesting. And, and swordfish. Swordfish play a really important role. Now, I had an amazing encounter off Sydney a couple of years ago. Now, driving out to sea, cruising along, and we saw it some wandering albatross. Now, wandering albatross are the big ones with a white head. Cruising along, saw a bunch of these. If you ever see a bunch of these guys sitting there, there's something dead on the surface. So whenever you see it, you race over to see what's going on. And we raced over. And what was there? A huge mako with a dead swordfish. He just killed the swordfish like it was super fresh. And he was just circling around it, just sitting there on the surface, soon as we came over and like we pulled up behind it and this was so fresh like it did not smell at all you could chop it up the um albatross was smashing into it shark came straight over the boat and started circling the boat and what's really interesting one of my good mates phil bolton who worked for fisheries had the exact same encounter found a swordfish dead one on the surface mako came straight over and just circled the boat now i was really keen to jump in smartly or stupidly but I thought I needed someone else to go with me to make sure that, you know, while I'm filming, I don't nothing happens and goes wrong. But I could not get another taker. No one else wanted to get on board. Mind you, the important, the good part, I suppose, is that that shark did not care at all. And he was quite happy to hang out with us 
He swam straight up the boat. He cruised around the boat. No fear whatsoever. It was amazing. Like one of those such a cool experiences, just cruising around with us and just sitting there as part of what it is that just, you know, that that rawness of nature. And we filmed him and I've got great drone footage back on the YouTube channel. You'll see it on there. And it's massive. My boat's six and a half, almost seven metres. And here's this huge huge shark swim around us and you can see how big he is like he's massive so we shot him with you know underwater footage like he was so close i just dropped the camera over the side filmed him around the boat big fat obviously a female because it was that sort of you know two and a half meters i suppose you know so it's a big fish so it really shows and i think that's one thing i absolutely love is those encounters in the open ocean that you just see it and what i'll do is i'll load up soon a photo up on instagram as well one of those aerial shots with the big mako around the back of the boat. We end up catching a few tuna that day, so it was one of those really good days. But that's what I love about being on the water, is those amazing experiences that you you just encounter along the way. And, you know, you see, it just, it just rocks my world. I know I talk about a bit and a half and carry on, but it's so amazing to think that, you know, here's a fish that can potentially grow to 700 kilos. Like, holy moly, that's a big fish. And here you are encountering one that's probably, well, it could be 25 years old. Oh, it's just awesome. I love those encounters. So you look at it, and this is what's really interesting, is that we know that when they're young, they like tuna, and they obviously feed on bigger tuna. We've all had yellowfin eaten by tuna or, you know, bluefin eaten by tuna by, you know, makos, which are obviously following the schools around looking for the sick one. But the fact that when they grow bigger, that they start targeting marlin and obviously swordfish, like my encounter was amazing in this, you know, whilst white sharks, and this is what's really interesting, they turn their attention to mammals, to seals and dolphins. And this is where their teeth play an important role. Mako's teeth are still fangs, so they're designed for grabbing. White sharks' teeth turn into that serrated for cutting. There's no question at all that they change over. And this probably plays an important role why makos don't actually predate on humans. You know, you don't seem to. And I think a few of those, you probably find out of those, that one fatal, maybe it's not even a mako. Maybe it's a white shark. Maybe, because we've seen a couple of times where they're coming up the boat and go, is that a white shark or is that a mako? It's really interesting that that plays a role. But this whole thing with makos and swordfish, you hear about it all around the world. Nick Stancer made over in Florida film one the other day that came and ate his swordfish. We've seen guys in New Zealand do it. Now that more people are catching swordfish, more people are having encounters where their swordfish is getting eaten. Now, I was fishing down in Melbourne a number of years ago with Ian Miller, who does those beautiful rides. You've got uh, George Larangis on Richie Abella's boat on Dreamcatcher 2. Listen to the podcast about swordfish with Richie. Oh, I love that guy's passion. It's bloody awesome. But anyway, we were out there fishing for swordfish, and we finally hook up, which is in the first hour. All these years of doing it at night. Oh, my God. We go out in the middle of the day, catch one straight away, bring it up, get it right to the boat. Ian's on the right. He's so excited. Mako comes and eats it. And this is something you hear a lot of. People going, oh, yeah, I had, to, had another one eaten. You know, they're regularly getting attacked. So it really makes you think about it. You know, it's an interesting scenario that Mako's, and swordfish don't like each other. And I'll throw a few marlin in there as well. Now, what we've got, I had, I've just put up the, the list on social media. Before I go into fishing, 
I'm going to start answering a few questions. So we've got Andrew James Parks. Why do they spin when jump? Only a only shark I've seen do it. They're not the only shark. You've got spinning whalers that actually do it as well. I tried to find out and see what else you know people could tell me about it, but no one seemed to know. The only theory we've come up is that they generate such speed as they're going out to get out of the water, obviously, especially those big ones. When you see them jump, we're filming Fishy with Mates season five, and we, we hooked a Mako, and when it came out of the water, man, those jumps. There is something about a Mako's jumps that are absolutely insane. But what I think it is, Andrews, as they're coming flying out of the water, they're such speed because they're the fastest shark. They're screaming up at such speed. When they come out, they lose control. You can see they don't always spin. They just roll over. Once they lose momentum, they spin and then crash back down. So I think they just come shooting out of the water a flat stick and then crash back down. So I think it's all to do with the speed. But that's my unofficial non-science response. Joel Oliver put up about that infamous Mako shot. If I could get a dollar, just one dollar for every time that shot goes up. You know what? A cent. It must be, I think they sent me a thing a while ago about being one of the most shared photos on Instagram at one stage. It was crazy. Absolutely crazy. And I tell you what, I still like it. And I admit, I do put it up a few times. If you haven't seen it, I'll go and put it up on Instagram. Uh, Where are the breeding and pup grounds? James Dracos. Really good question. I think top end temperate waters, bottom end tropical sea, uh, tropical waters there so i think that's where they spawn but that's a really good question because i don't think we actually know what water temp do you mainly find them in around the 20s but as i said earlier on these fish have got such an amazing array of temperatures you know you catch them down in tassie where it's freezing cold you encounter them up i mean i heard the guys up on the great barrier reef they're chasing the giant black marlin that might have even seen them right up there so they're there, but they just prefer that cooler water as a general rule. But I was, if I was going to say a temperature, 18 to 24 degrees is El Primo. Uh, largest mako you've ever heard caught was the one obviously over in uh, in the US there. I don't know what the biggest is in Australia. I think it's around that. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know what the biggest one in Australia is, James. I'm going to have to look that up and see. Now, question four. Jeez, you've got a few questions here, James. You're doing well. Can they run through the water column like swordfish or are they affected by pressure? So they don't, sharks don't have a swim bladder. So yes, they can, to the best of my knowledge, move up and down. But they, and we do know that makos feed deep. So we've seen them feeding on the bottom and obviously they're chasing the swordfish around as well. So we do know they travel through. Whether they can do it super fast, I'm not sure whether they do that all. I've never experienced it, I suppose. Is it safe to swim with a mako or are you running the gauntlet of being chewed up? I'm going to put my neck out and say, chances are you'll be safe. The problem, though, is they're inquisitive. Now, with inquisitive with you and I, we pick it up with a hand. With a shark, they use their mouth. So a lot of friends are speared and seen them in the water. And I think there's a little bit of dominance thing in there. They might come in and give you a bit of a rousing. I've had a few sharks over the years give me a rousing. Generally, they're quite placid, but if you're jumping in with a burlied up shark, you are asking for a bit unless you're reading, you know, every shark's different, of course. Uh, I'll continue to jump in with them, but I would never recommend anyone else do it, just in case they get eaten. Is it true, this is from Ben Pointer, 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 I think it is, Ben, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it true that they are only predate on tuna? Nope. 
100% not. They'll eat squid. They're opportunistic hunters. They love swordfish and marlin as they get bigger. So tuna definitely, but they'll take everything else that comes along that looks cool. Uh, looks good as well. Ah, Mike Foothead, cool photo. It is an awesome photo. Uh, Nathan Scott, I hear, I read, heard somewhere that for every foot they grow in length, they double in weight. Is this true? Well, no, not really. Considering the lengths I've given you, they definitely, once they start stretching out, they fatten up a lot more. But no, they probably won't. So every foot, they probably won't double in weight. They will obviously increase, but it wouldn't be double. And do you know what? It would vary between areas. So if they've had a really good season, they're feeding up good, they're going to get fatter. Whilst in lean times, like I've caught some fish that are really thin. They are. Tony Ambrosi said they are perfectly designed specimen. I could not agree with you more. Uh, Matt Cozzi, why are they so angry? Matt, I don't reckon they're angry. I reckon they're inquisitive. I think that plays a massive role in it. They have that big black eye that makes them look evil and they come and bite your engine because that's because the electrodes, they're sensing something and they're testing it. But they're not aggressive. You think sometimes trying to get them to eat a bait, how hard it is. When we had that massive mako that was eating the swordfish, couldn't even tease him in with a bait. Not interested. So are they aggressive? Like any fish, at times they can be, but I think as a general rule, they're very quiet. Ben McAlpine. Oh, here you go. Ben caught a 407 off Sydney a few years ago. I'd love to know the age of a big female and the breeding rates. Well, there you go. I've actually answered that one for you, Ben. So at 407, they're pretty much getting up there, you know, the top end of their weight. And she would be up in the 20 years, as a general rule, 20 plus years and fully prime spawning mode. So, yeah, interesting. So it does. And we do like catching big sharks. A lot of guys want to catch them, but it worries me about killing them, I've got to say, especially with the megafauna like that, you know, Dolphins and whales are all out of fine. Big makos. I want to see more big makos. We might have to readdress. And this is another interesting point. The commercials in Australia are not allowed to take live makos. That's the rules. Now, if you're on a long liner and you're working under the Commonwealth or federally, you've got cameras on board. You can't kill makos if they're live. They have to be stone dead, which is a great way to do it. Sadly... It seems our domestic fishery in New South Wales flaunt that rules quite often, and you see it on Facebook even, them putting up photos of dead makos. Some of them, they had photos. I remember seeing one ages ago, killing a mako. Come on, New South Wales fisheries. You need to step up on this. We need to look after these makos. If that's the rules, they have to be dead. If they're not doing their job, maybe stop them killing them full stop. Or put cameras on. Maybe that's what we need. Put cameras on the boat. Because I love eating makos, so don't get me wrong either. But I start now, after looking and doing this, I start to wonder about it and go, should I be doing it? They are delicious. They are really delicious. That's a tough question, isn't it? You know, beer-battered mako fillets, God, they're good to eat. But I like seeing makos around. I love it. For a number of years there off Sydney, we had this congregation or aggregation on Browns Mountain. And I think Sydney Game Fishing tagged like a couple hundred fish in a day there. I think it was 180 fish in two days, something like that anyway. It was a massive number of sharks. And these fish haven't come back in any real numbers since. Now, we don't know why they were there. It was an interesting scenario because they all turned up, literally, and we, we've got aggregations of uh, gemfish and, you know, and uh, blue eye and all these bottom fish, so we thought it might be them. But the bottom fish turned up before, and after the makos were done, or after the, the makos then vanished, the 
bottom fish were still there. The ground fish were still there. And we did some satellite tagging when they were here to see what they did. Now, you'd think these fish, and this is in the winter month, would follow the current just locally up or down, the East Australian current, that vital one that Nemo swam along in. You know, infamous that, you know, epitomised what it became. You know, the East Australian current is all that life. Now, you'd think those Makos would hang around. So I tagged them, and they, you know what they did? They swam everywhere. Some of them swam all the way up to the Coral Sea. Maybe they were going up there for spawning. Interesting, isn't it? This highlights one thing. We need more research. And no one's doing any research on Makos at the moment in Australia. Um, none at all, as far as I know. And if they are, they're not publicising it very good. We need more research on Makos sharks. So maybe we can get those greenies out there. Let's put some money where your mouth is. Let's stop carrying on about it and let's start doing it. I'll put some money up. I haven't got very much, but I'll put up what I can and I'll volunteer to go and tag them all and pay for all the fuel and everything to get out there. So let's do it. Now, one of the interesting things that I've had, and I've had quite a few comments about this on social media, is about where do the Makos go and how many are being tagged. And you know what? The New South Wales tagging program, New South Wales game fish tagging program, has tagged 8,000 Makos. Now, this is all volunteer anglers. This is you and I and everyone else putting our tags in to help these fish to learn about them. And this is critical if we want to look after them because you can't look after them if you don't know what they're doing. So, Phil Bolton, my good mate down at Fisheries, sent me some details. So, out of the 8,000, we've only had 190 recaptures. Now, when you think about what the recapture rate was like with kingfish when we talked about that earlier on, which is through the roof, it's alarmingly high. This shows a much more realistic. No, the sharks aren't all dying. Let's just get it clear. We're, we're just, they're vanishing off. They're just, we're not sure where they are. We haven't got enough tag. We need to do more satellite tagging um, like they did with Robert French all those years ago off New South Wales. We need to learn about these fish. So here's some interesting facts. Best year was 2013, which I think is the year that I was talking about when Sydney had that insane run. And there were something like 300 and something sharks tagged. Now, looking at the maps here, we've had some really fascinating returns. We've majority tagged on the New South Wales coast, couple tagged in Victoria and down in Tasmania. That's where the majority of fish are tagged. So it's a real hot spot for them on that Tasman front on the East Australian current. But the number one for the longest distance Mako movement with the record stands at 257, 2,577 miles. I can't even read it right. It was so big. Now, that's in a straight line. So the fish was tagged off... Now, where was it tagged originally? Off New South Wales. I think it was down at Wollongong and was recaptured off north of the Philippines. Like in the northern... That's travelling. So that is a massive one. Another one tagged uh, down at Wollongong was recaptured in a remote village in Papua New Guinea. Like, how cool is this? Another shark, yeah, down at Stanwell Park, same thing, Papua New Guinea. So but largely recaptured by commercial longline vessels, not Australian ones, international ones. Uh, what's the longest? One shark spent 1,818 days at Liberty, and travelled in a straight line of almost 4,000 kilometres. So we've had sharks swim 
into the Solomons, Papua New Guinea, New Caledonia, quite a few heading towards New Caledonia, which is interesting. Um, Cross to Western Australia, one's gone that way, and a pile to New Zealand. So there's a lot of trans-Tasman movement, I suppose you'd call it. So, yeah, it's really interesting, you know. Three Makos originally tagged near Browns, which is that seamount of Sydney, the one I was saying that's such a good spot, were all recaptured roughly in the same location. So they didn't move much, some of them. So, and this included one that was captured twice by the same boat. So that shows that Makos, you catch them on, catch and release them with circle hooks, does it? They do not seem to care. So it seems that those fish want to aggregate over Browns. It definitely seems to be a local aggregation there. And when I did the sat tagging with Rob French, uh, they had one that, I think one fish, one fish stayed in the same area. Others moved north into the Coral Sea. And this is what's fascinating, going right up into that Coral Sea. You know, why were these fish, why would they race up in the Coral Sea? Is it spawning, like I was saying before? We need to spend more money, not on marine parks, on research so we know what's going on. It's just so important that we find out what's going, that these things, quite a few tagged off New South Wales going into Victoria, you know, one off Jarvis Bay within 49 days was 350 miles south at Cape Shank in Victoria. So, and, you know, caught off Cape Woolamai. So guys down fishing in Victoria, that Phillip Island area is obviously a good spot. You know, one juvenile left estimated at 120 semi, so 15 kilos, only real small fish was at liberty for only 13 days and only travelled three miles from where it was originally tagged. So it shows that the effects, you know, this is interesting, that they don't seem to be stressed too much about catch and release. Uh, another fish, Home Straight, who do really well in the swordfish, got one at 120 and after only a single day, still swam 16 miles southeast and was recaptured. Uh, another one with a sat tag, you know, but the, the sat tag was returned, so it wasn't out for very long, but means we can redo it. This is really important. If you ever find a fish with a tag, any tag in it, report it. Try and get the length and stuff. When we do marlin and all that, when we get them, we pull the tag out and re-tag them or try and, yeah, re-tag them. I was going to say you can try and read the tag, but I don't think that's the smartest thing to do. So... And that tag that was the one that went off one day and was back and they returned the tag to Paul who's from Sardi in South Australia does the shark tagging down there, went out in another one. So there's a bunch of Makos out and I should try and follow up because this is one of the problems with researchers. They do very little to engage the public on what they discover. Probably the only one who does it really well, Sean Tracy, who's IMAS down in Tassie. He and I did the satellite tagging for Bluefin. This bloke switched on. He understands that recreational anglers are his biggest ally ever because we're citizen science. We're part of it. It's really important for us to be a part of this and we want to be involved. I love doing this, you know. It's really just, yeah, I love seeing. Like one fish tagged off Port Ferry in Victoria, travelled 160 miles eastward to Cape Willamite in just seven days. What makes them travel so, f like, is he just cruising? Is he going flat stick? Is he on the current? You know, one tagged off Bermagui was recaptured 110 days later off St. Helens, off Tasmania. You know, I love reading these, where they go and what they do. Uh, there was another one, three kilos when released by a commercial vessel. That must be just literally, literally just born. It was recaptured near the southern Queensland coast 108 days later and estimated seven kilos. So it's growing quickly, you know. They're scooting up. They're doing... 
Well, he's doing more than a kilo a month. Uh, you've got other ones. Like, I love reading all these. One fish tagged at Botany Bay was estimated 110 kilos, you know. When we captured the Coma Canyons, it was weighed 118 kilos. So they're putting on a bit of weight as well. So, But they're apparently slow growing. So how does that make sense? So this is what I love. All this tagging data just plays a real... Not only can we use it to become better fishermen, but it's also really, really good for me that you understand the fish. And being a good fisherman, respecting the ocean, is all about understanding the fish you're chasing. You know, I love it because, you know... Tasmania's got a strong mako shark fishery. New South Wales has a strong mako shark fishery. And South Australia, to a lesser degree, Victoria does as well. By understanding these fish better, we can look after them and make it better for the future. So let's go into the, the bands that, and the, the history with mako sharks. Now, now we know they're obviously a slow-growing species that we need to look after. That's, that goes without saying. However... This is where the important part comes into it. And in the past, it's all, you know, marine parks. They don't help because we don't even know where they spawn. So how are we going to help them? And I remember years ago, Peter Garrett, now he was famous for singing Midnight Oil, I think it was. He decided he'd take his hand into politics. Well, we quickly learnt because he had the, um, he, I think he, what was it, the people who were doing the um, ins- the roof insulation, three people died, he ran that, so he's responsible for that. Then he decided that because, now let me get this right, they were, mako sharks were endangered in the Mediterranean, that he would ban fishing for them in Australia. You got that right. Can you believe that? I don't know if he went to school, this bloke, but do you know what? The Mediterranean is on the other side of the earth. And I'm pretty sure our mako sharks aren't swimming that far. We actually have quite a good mako shark fishery here. And they're quite healthy. And you can see by management tools like you can't kill, you can't take fish or you can't kill them on a commercial boat. And as I said, some obviously domestic uh, operators are doing the wrong thing, which is now that's an enforcement issue or a management issue. It's not marine parks, it's nothing else. So when you get fisheries managers like Garrett, that decided that, you know, because the Mediterranean was in trouble, we would do our bit. Oh, my God. It's seriously, I scratch my head sometimes. How can you ban recreational fishing for them when they're fine? And I'll read you an extra. Now, Mal Holland wrote a piece in the Daily Telegraph, and this is this is back in 2010 when all this rubbish was going on, when Garrett back down because you can't make these decisions without knowing what's going on and it was meant to be banned on a friday so fishing for short fin mako sharks in new south wales and the rest of the country was due to ban on friday because of australia was a signatory to the international treaty for the convention on migratory species the un sponsored treaty which aims to protect animals fish and birds that move around the globe ordered the ban on mako shark fishing because of a decline in mako shark numbers in the Mediterranean and Eastern Atlantic Ocean. But Australian recreational fishers said the ban was ridiculous. Of course, our numbers are good. We've got good management. We don't have the issues they have in the Mediterranean where there are, you know, several countries doing it. Australia runs 200 miles around, nautical miles around Australia and we do manage it. There aren't boats sneaking in and out. You see, every time I've gone to remote areas, there it is. There's the, um, the um, Coast Watch plane flying over the top, you know. Really good. So we are actually really good. We up, if you go up to 
um, Scott Reef, which is up in Northwest Australia, we literally have a patrol boat sitting out there. You know, this is the thing. So, so let me read on a bit more. Uh, Julian Pepperell said banning fishing for them would do absolutely nothing to help these sharks in the Northern Hemisphere. That is why Julian Pepperell is a good scientist, because he's logical. It doesn't even help. Why are we doing it just so some politician can make himself feel good? And the Federal Environment Minister, that's what Peter Garrett was at the time, said yesterday he would allow catch and release fishing after the international ban came into effect on Friday. But the catching the sharks tweet could not be allowed until the law was changed after Parliament sat next month. Well, it was changed because 90% of mako sharks are already released anyway. Oh, my God. And then the Humane Society has accused Garrett of being gutless. Yeah, he was gutless. He went and put up something that he had no idea about. You know, this is the thing that I sit there and go, how on earth can these people operate? How can we allow a bloke to be a minister who has no idea like that? It's so frustrating for me, and I keep saying it, fishermen are the true custodians, both rec and commercial. We both got people that need to be cleaned out in both areas, but we're on the water all the time. We can help. That's what it is. We want lots of fish. It will never, ever change. But I'm not harping on this time. I'm going to be good. But Garrett, you're an idiot. Just leaving it at that. Okay. In the early days when I did strike cam, and so strike zone, the DVDs and all that was where I started. And if you go back to the original podcast, Humble Beginnings, that's where I talked about it. Because with Ron Croft, that's how we started all this, you know, filming. And it was an amazing thing for me to do this in those early days. And, yeah, it's now, it's just to me, I just sit there going, this is awesome. This is absolutely, what an amazing thing. But one of the great things we did, so we built our own strike cam, which is basically an underwater camera. In those days, there was no HD, there was nothing. It was just standard def, and we had a big cable up to the boat, and we're dra dragging this around, and we used to put a live bait on the back of it so we'd film kingies and stuff. We had quite a number of times where Makos came up and actually ate the camera. Not the bait, the camera. And one classic one, we had the guys from Club Marine out, and it came up and swallowed the camera so that the camera was looking out its gills. Can you believe that? But what's interesting is why did it not eat the live bait and why did it attack the camera? And it just shows that did, did it see a reflection in the camera? Was it the electrolysis coming off, like the electrical pulse coming off the camera? What made those sharks eat it? And what even made it better was we even filmed some of those inside Sydney Harbour. So I tell you what, that's another one for those 600 and, what is it, 620 species that are found in Sydney Harbour. If they didn't count makos, just add it to the list. So another interesting thing we had, now while we're still in the strike zone days, is we're out burling offshore, we're trying to chase the yellowfin, there's a mako shark swimming around the boat, and he'd swim up to the birds. So we had a couple of those uh, big skewers, you know, those big uh, skewers which are a big brown, looks like an albatross, but it's not albatross, I suppose is the best way to describe them. They were hanging around the back of the boat, and it looked like, looking down at the water, it looked like the shark was swimming up and nipping, nipping at them. Anyway... It wasn't until we'd used, and in those days we still had the strike cam, but we put on a pole, that we looked at the strike cam footage that we realised, do you know what? The shark was going up, and when the birds were going down to peck it, which we thought was like your natural, from above it looked like it was pecking it to 
you know, say, bugger off, leave me alone. When we look closely at it, it was actually the complete opposite. The shark was moving up to the birds and the birds were picking the parasites off it. How amazing is this? Like I sat there going, and it's only because we couldn't see that it wasn't until we looked at the footage afterward, they're actually eating it. And I think it's still on those original strikes zone back in the days of DVDs, it's still there. Like it blows my mind that something so amazing was happening. Like I look at it to this day and go, oh my God, that's unreal. How cool is nature? So what looks like the shark being aggressive is actually the complete opposite. The shark is going up and moving up so that the birds can pick the parasites off its back. And yet from the boat, we thought it was trying to eat them. This is what I love about nature. This is the bit that I just go, oh, wow. And I suppose that goes back to that aggressive thing. Oh, you just sit there going, oh, they're being aggressive. They're trying to eat the birds. No, they're not. They're working together. They're moving up and the birds are picking parasites out of its back. Wow. Nature is simply cool. All right. So we've talked about Makos. We've talked about the history with Makos. We've talked about the Maori name, that that's where it came from. I didn't actually know that. Or Marcos, as they call them in New Zealand, not Makos, Marcos. Uh, distribution worldwide, the two species, uh, their love of swordfish. Of course, my infamous encounter with the marlin and being eaten by the Mako. Now let's get down to fishing. Because they are, there are a few fish that perform like a Mako. Like you're sitting there, you get a hook up, the line's screaming off, and then they just literally explode out of the water. We've got some cool footage on YouTube that we shot during, I think it was, I think I said earlier on, season five, I think it was, this Mako just jump and clean out of the water. And the pearl cameraman's going, which way do I shoot? Left, right, which way, which way? And I'm going, ah, uh, we don't know. Boom, explodes there, explodes there. There is nothing like hooking a mako when it comes out of the water. They are just those explosive jumps. And and we have heard over the years about a few people that have, you know, ended up having them in the boats. I remember at Bermagui that these guys, had, it jumped in the boat and they jumped out of the boat. They were safer in the water than in the boat. I never saw any photos of the boat in the end, but apparently that's what had happened. So it destroyed the inside of their boat. So, yeah, if there's any fish that goes ballistic, it is them. Because catching a big shark, like you catch tigers and things like that, it's just boring. It's just they don't fight. But a mako, absolutely go off. So, yeah, and yeah, there's just nothing like it. Okay, so how do we catch makos? Now, they're opportunistic opportunistic feeders, so they'll eat anything from striped tuna to squid. And their sense of smell is exceptional. So for that, burling is the key if you put a burly trail out you're going to bring them into you and now here in new south wales you get your makos during the winter months offshore during the summer when that east australian current's pushing they generally push down and that's where players like tasmania and south australia and victoria and all that seem to get better numbers as the water temperature warms up down there but it's too hot up here but you do get at this time of year which is the spring is this run of inshore small makos. Now, interestingly, the numbers have been dropping off in the last few years. Probably the last five or six years, they used you used to see them literally every few trips to where now we don't see them as regular. Is that because a number of the big females have been killed? We don't know. But it definitely needs to be something worth considering, you know, because that goes back to what I was saying before. Are these fish the only ones left that those big, you know, the three, 400 kilo fish, the ones that are 20-year-olds, and they only, they only breed a few times in their life, that's a bloody worry. 
Either way, we're not seeing as many fish inshore. The bigger ones offshore, so the, let's go back to technique. I'm just diversifying here. Is that get out to the shelf as a general rule, set up a burly trout. Now, what's important is you don't want the drift to be going too hard. You don't want to be screaming down the coast at 10 knots, you know. You want about a knot of current, just enough to create a really good burly trail because the longer it is, the greater that net's going to be that's going to catch them because they're going to swim through it, they're going to hit it and swim up the trail. Uh, times of day, tide change, I don't know if it's really that bigger issue. I don't think it's, you know, might maybe help a little bit. Come back and tell me if you think it does. I'm not a hardcore mako fisherman. When I go mako fishing, I burly them up and then tease them to the boat with hookless baits. I don't like catching them anymore. It's too hard. We catch most of ours, which I'll probably go into a minute, marlin fishing these days. So going back to the burly, what's the best burly? Tuna, anything oily. I had a bit of leftover swordfish there once that, oh, it's a long story, but it ended up going off. The freezer failed, lost a bit of swordfish, put that in as burly. They loved it. So if you catch a big sword, keep the frame. Don't throw it out. Keep the frame. I don't know how you're going to fit it in the freezer, but keep the frame and hang that over the side and you'll get makos will come running for that because it's so oily too. So tuna oil, pilchards work, anything that that fish, blood. And just a word on tuna oil, when you buy a lot of that, a lot of it's been substituted with, you know, other styles of oil. And so just be very wary of that, that when you buy it, the cheaper stuff isn't 100% tuna oil. So you're putting cooking oil out there like, Jesus, that's not going to bloody work. Now, the old style of burling is where you, you get the bucket, you punch it through, you got the burly munch, you punch away. That's old school. It's bloody painful. The best way these days is you get a pre-frozen block, which you can buy at the Complete Angler, and you might have to order them in sometimes. So you get, and you put that frozen into either a keeper bag. Some guys use the... Uh, milk crates with a lid on it and you just sit that and then because obviously it, it defrosts slowly and creates this perfect trail you don't have to do anything it's the best way to do it it's unreal again you need to make sure they put the right stuff in there um, I've done it a few times where we've caught big tuna similar to what I was saying before with the swordfish and I keep the frame and just tie that to the back of the boat so I don't lose that either I have seen in the past and I know this is an absolute disgrace, people actually catching tuna and using the whole body just for your shark burly. That should be illegal. You eat the tuna and use the frame. Do not waste an ink. This is what Tuna Champions is all about, is about respecting the ocean and doing the right thing. Besides, bloody good food. Like, why would you waste it? So, yeah, I have seen that. Not for a number of years. Luckily, those style of people, I think, have removed themselves or gone from the sp- maybe in prison who knows i'll be in trouble for that won't i anyway back to it so yeah so you get the burly and it's a matter of sitting there and waiting now what i do is i don't put any lines in the water i just sit there and monitor because i like to see the fish makos can actually be quite often can be very very shy not come up you know might stay away so if you want to set the baits you set one deep way down the back on a float and you set that usually well far or well down the trail then you keep another one up close and always have a spare rig rigged and ready in the boat now when it comes to rigs in the old days it used to be you know that that blue wire we used to run and you'd run like i don't know whatever is the igfa rules of three 
three meters is it something like that three meters and whatever it is for over 15 kilo tackle or under 15 10 foot under and 10 foot for up to 10 kilo and 30 foot for over i think you don't need that much whatever the rules are the only amount of wire you need is a really short section because there's only one hook to use circle hooks if you use j hooks you're in the dark ages that's how far behind you are you think of it all commercial fishing is all circles because they work so well plus you're letting these fish go you don't want to put a big pair of j hooks down his guts you want to let him go so you want to do it right you got to do it the right way so the important thing there is with circle hooks obviously larger ones vmcs that sort of stuff the wider gape on it um and what we do is this is what i was saying before is you run a short section of wire and it might only be a foot or two because and then run your heavier leader from that the important thing with this and otto volts did it for us he showed us now he used to be uh gfaa game fishing association of australia and he caused you to you run otto's in um Dremoyne there which now louis got but he showed me this trick and what you do is you only run a foot of wire so if you do hook it that it gets caught one side and cuts across the mouth or something like that no problem at all it's still enough wire to keep that and then you run the heavier leader after that because cutting wire can be trouble you don't want to go too close you can get the shark up to the boat on the mono plus you're not taking wraps on wire wire's not good for taking wraps and for people who don't understand taking wraps is if you've got that five six meters of wire obviously you can't wind that onto the rod so you have to handline that last section if you're dealing with a great big shark that can be serious trouble i've heard of stories of people breaking hands and all types of trouble instead you can run 400 pound mono down to a foot or two foot of wire which is a lot better for handling the sharks and also if you cut it off or break it off it'll break down to that wire so you're not leaving the shark with a heap of wire hanging out of its mouth this is important for conservation and this is what we as the custodians of the ocean as anglers are doing to do minimize any impact and maximizing the good side of what we do i ran out of words there so that's a great way to do it so your circle hooks only hook to use it should be law that's my view same as billfish it should be law no j hooks for bait because it's just it's just not logical guys these fish are too precious and as i said we're going back to them 20 year old fish we want them swimming around i want as many makos i love seeing makos you know it's just really important so we always have the rigs that way we use you know your mono i fish 24 i don't fish it in less than 24 you can if you're starting to fish lighter it usually means the fish doesn't fight that's the basic rule so yeah when they catch those big tigers and you're using light tackle because they don't fight they don't care it's a tiger shark they're big dopey things but i'm not i'm not bagging it i'm just saying that you don't need it so we fish 24 and catch them plus they jump more i want them jumping the best part of catching a mako shark is seeing it jump it's awesome anyway so you have one way down the back under a float sitting up high right up in that trail so that slick on the surface they're smelling that they're swimming up they come to that bait first of course normally use your heavier tackle down there just in case big circle look in it you know you can use baits like mullet a fillet tuna you don't have to be too fussy with that although the old rule the fresher the better then you have a second one up close and sometimes we have a bait down deep the deep bait tends to be more for tigers and stuff as we found in the past and i always put a live bait at the back of the boat in case there's marlin and stuff around as well 
because I prefer to catch them anyway. So you've got your baits out, but we tend to keep all the baits in the boat and just keep a visual. We have a teaser bait sitting at the back of the boat and then we just sit there looking down the trail. I want the fish to come to the boat. I want to look at them first and then decide what we're going to pitch to them. So it's like pitch baiting for Makos. It's the best fun. It is unreal. When you hook up, basically the great thing is if you don't feed a bait straight away, just get excited or used to the boat. And it's that experience, that encounter with swimming around with them. I remember years ago, round on, we had Mal Holland and all the guys from the Daily Telegraph came out and we went out to Browns Mountain. All the blokes are bottom fishing there and we're, you know, waiting for a mako. And all you had to do was listen to the boat, the bloke swearing and carrying on, hey, a bloody, bloody shark step. Right, drive over next to him, drive over next to him. And he had a couple of guys looking and going, what are you doing, mate? I said, we'll get rid of the shark for you. Burly him up, up straight to the boat. And we'd film them. God, it was good fun. And there were just thousands of them. And I'm not sure how many sharks. I wish I'd, I'd check and see. Someone from the um, Sydney Game Fishing Club could probably send in a, a message and tell us, like one of the club members anyway, could tell us. Because their record year, I reckon it was about five or six years ago, was insane the number of Makos. And interestingly, from memory, a majority were males. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Anyway... Yeah, so you catch, so we like to look at them first, and I like to that experience them swim around the boat. You know, they're straight to the boat, they swim around. I love that part of it. Plus, for me, I'm filming them, so I prefer to get the shot. I got some great shots there of them, you know, above and below, which are actually easier shot from the boat than in the water. Can you believe that? But it's probably safer too, I suppose. So yeah, so I keep the gear in the boat and monitor what fish come up, but the big ones and the smart ones don't always come up. So you might be better if you want to catch one to leave a bait in the water. When it comes to fighting them, feed them the bait. It's just like a marlin. No pressure. You've got a circle look on. Push it up gently, slowly, go up to strike, load up, feel the weight, then get the camera ready because it's going to jump. Nine times out of ten, as they feel it, they come screaming up, trying to get that shot. God, it's hard, but God, they're awesome fish. I love it. I love those jumping shots, you know, it's just something that's so awesome. And then pull in the other gear. If it's a smaller shark, leave the other gear out and try and catch another one and just try and work around it. Because sometimes when they turn up, they turn up en masse. So, and then just just fish it, you know, keep you cool while you're fighting them. Always have a plan. This goes across all game fishing. Everyone has a role. So everyone's on strike, they're on the right, obviously. Then you have who's on the leader. You might be on the wheel. If you need to on a bigger fish, you might need to manoeuvre the boat. Then when you get up, you're going to tag it or if you're going to take it. This is what you're going to do. If you're going to take that fish, look after it. I put them immediately on ice. So I cut the head off or gut and gill it out and ice it straight away. Absolutely straight away without question because it's no different from a gummy shark that you've got to look after them. You don't leave it sitting there whole in the boat. Oh, God, if you did that, it just wouldn't, you can't eat it. So gut them out straight away, bleed them out and put them on ice. Now, as... As relaxing as that style of fishing is, or as good as that style of fishing is, because it is a relaxing style. You're sitting there, generally on calm days, just sitting there watching. It can be boring for a while, then all of a sudden the sharks are there swimming around the boat. It is really, really cool seeing them swim around the boat. I love it. Absolutely love it. You can also pitch to free swimming fish. So we always have a rig ready to go, because you might be marlin fishing, you might be Hey, you might be doing there's a number of things you can be doing you're out in the water there you see the fin cruising along there he is up on the top race over and just put a bait in front of it 
you see a lot of hammerheads here in New South Wales. We see lots of hammerheads. They're really hard to catch for some reason. They're generally small fish. But you see a mako, you can do the same thing. We've had a number of times. Now, last season, the marlin season, might have been the season before, I think, we had an insane number of makos. In fact, I saw more makos in the fall or autumn than I did during the mako season. And we caught quite a few on tiny little 90 circles designed for marlin, so they were eating the live baits. So, But if you're serious about it, you'd have one rigged up with a heavy rig and, of course, just a couple of foot of heavier wire down to the circle and have a bait sitting there ready to go. So when they come up, maybe they chase your marlin up, maybe they quite often they just come and look at the boat, you're ready. And this is about being an opportunistic angler. Something happens, bang, I'm onto it. And that's the way you catch more fish. It's simple as that. The other way, and this is probably the final way, but is probably the most incidental catch or incidental version of catching makos, is simply fishing for something else. So you're kingy fishing. My mate Nick Martin, who's charter fisherman, he actually went over to Guatemala fishing there, then came back to Sydney doing kingy charters and has struggled ever since, the silly bugger. Like Guatemala, it's calm and full of sailfish and fish every day. Sydney, not quite as good as it used to be. Lots of pollution and stuff like that. The fishing's still good, but we need to still clean up. You know, over all the suburban runoff, oh, it's terrible. But yeah, so he comes back, but he has heaps of times. You know, you're fishing for kingfish, uh, yellowtail or Californian yellowtail for everyone elsewhere in the world. And quite often the makos are following them around. So they're, they're sort of shadowing those schools. And so when you're catching them, the mako will turn up and turn it and tax your fish. And they do it a lot. New Zealand, the guys there, the Kiwis have it regularly. The makos come up, marcos come up and eat your kingies. But it's also snapper fishing. It's also salmon schools in close. The makos, they're an opportunistic predator. So they're sitting on the edge of schools. So while you're fishing, bottom fishing, whatever you're doing, all of a sudden a mako turns up and starts eating your snapper. Again, you've got to have that rig there ready to go. He follows it up, pitch your bait back out to him, catch him. And it's really simple. It's just these opportunities that are sitting there ready to go. You've just got to be ready for it and act on it. Again, just going into the circles, the larger size circles, really good. Don't ever use J-hooks. You know, it's just it's just wrong. Look at the VMCs, inline, obviously all inline circles. Do not use offset circles because they'll gut hook them. Pain in the ass. It's no good for release, no good for the fish. It's no good for our sport. It is, and I've said, look, I'm a big one on catch and release, but there is nothing wrong with taking the odd one. You just need to understand that if you take a fish out of that system, the impact that it'll have. Yes, you can say, I'm the only one, I'm only doing one. But there's 25 million people in Australia. There's 330, 50 million in the US, whatever it is. So everyone, so we all have an impact is what I'm trying to say. I still kill the odd one. I love eating him. I waste nothing on it, eat the whole lot. And you know what? I chuck all the fins out. Once we clean it up, I get all those fins and chuck them back in the sea. There's no chance of ever ending up that ridiculous shark fin soup. What an absolute waste. They say that they kill 100 million sharks a year. I have no idea how on earth who came up with those figures or how on earth they could come up with those figures. But I doubt there are 100 million sharks in the ocean, to be honest with you. Bloody hell. So they'd have annihilated them in one year. But for wasting a beautiful fish for shark fin soup, I don't mind if you're utilising the rest of the fish, but we've seen how this fishery operates. And 
it is done with a lack of respect for the fish that they cut the fins are cut off if you utilize the whole fish i'm all for utilizing even more of it but not that way that's just not right in any shape or form so yeah for me i like letting them go i'll take the odd one now and again but seeing those big ones to swim off or swim around they don't mind a hook in the corner of the mouth. We caught a lot of, this year we saw a lot of blue sharks actually, not that many makos, a lot of blue sharks following the tuna around. They all had a hook in their mouth. Most of them long line hooks, some domestic and a couple of international by the look of the gear. I didn't get a real good close up look. So they're fine with them in, just cut them off close up. And you know what? Watching them swim off, What I just watch them swim around the boat sometimes. Every encounter with a mako is simply awesome. They're just such a great fish. And that's why I was so excited about doing this podcast. They're just an awesome fish. So there you have it, mako sharks. They're pretty cool, eh? They're an amazing fish. They're all around Australia, mainly on the east coast and south and west coast. Not as much across the top, but I suspect the old one would float around up there. Get out there encounter them and maybe you should even try slipping in the water with them now only kidding don't jump in leave that to the idiots or experts i'm not sure which way it is so there you have it another podcast mako sharks is done number 13 i think we're up to now again follow us on facebook follow us on instagram get on the youtube channel we're boosting that right up now we're just doing the uh live or the updates premieres whatever you call it more live stuff but we're also going and putting the whole season of Fishing With Mates on there as well. I think they premiere Saturday. The The first one went out on the 19th of October. So we're now putting them out. The new season's up and running. Fishing With Mates season seven is on in Australia right now, which is in the uh, spring in Australia. It's going on Sportsman's Channel in the US. And I'm not sure if it's going to Netflix. I don't know. No one seems to tell me anything there. The doco's out, the Bluefin documentary. Hey, maybe we should do a doco on Mako Sharks. We definitely need to do more research on them. So there you have it, Mako Sharks. And this is Alma Glashen with the best job in the world. Fishing is my life. It's in my DNA. From above the water and below the surface. It's who I am. Join me as I travel the world in search of the most insane fishing experiences on the planet. You got it. Oh, yeah. Big fish right there, Al. Yeah, baby. The size of it. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh,